You're listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hello and welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by 90 Min. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simu, on this fine Wednesday morning. And of course, uh, England take on Denmark tonight in the second semi-final of these European Championships with England uh, having the possibility I guess, the opportunity uh, to progress through to the final and set up what would be an incredible final against Italy, who defeated Spain on penalties uh, to progress last night. We're going to be digging into that game between Italy and Spain. We're also going to be looking ahead to England versus Denmark. We'll also be taking your thoughts and comments from the live chat box as well. So there is plenty to get into. Are we going to talk about Arsenal on this show? No, we're not. Uh, but we will be bringing you our normal transfer talk show uh, a little bit later on. We're going to do it a little bit earlier today. We normally do it live at around about 4, 4.30 p.m. But as I say, we're going to do it a little bit earlier. We're going to do it at around about 3 p.m. today because I know that a lot of people will want to be going, getting their spots, uh, meeting up with friends and, and sort of building up to the England game tonight. So we're going to do it that little bit earlier so that you can get it out of the way. You can watch it. Make sure you're up to date with all the latest Arsenal transfer news, but then also uh, make sure you enjoy the occasion that is this evening. And um, we're going to kick off by talking about what unfolded last night at Wembley Stadium. And I was incredibly fortunate to have been in the stadium. Um, for those of you who were watching the podcast, the live stream that we were doing with myself and Sophie uh, at 4.30pm yesterday, you would have maybe wondered why we cut it that little bit short. Uh, we were planning to do about 40, 45 minutes and we only ended up doing about 20, 25. And that was because... Um, I'd been informed while we were on uh, that I'd had a ticket for the game and I was trying to kind of make arrangements and trying to get everything booked and get everything sorted. Because, of course, now with the COVID restrictions, uh, you need to upload ID onto the system. You need to take a lateral flow test uh, within 48 hours of your attendance. So I had to do one of those before I left as well. All of that had to be sorted, had to be arranged, had to be organised but I also had to get to the stadium in time. And um, it was a rush. Um, but the feeling when we got inside the ground, maybe five minutes prior to the teams coming out for their national anthems was an incredible one because I guess we kind of understood the struggle that we'd gone through to get there because of how late uh, it all came about. But to cut a long story short, I don't know if any of you have attended any of the Euros games, but you need to download the ticket onto your app. But because the tickets were purchased so late in the day, the tickets never filtered through to the app, which meant that we got to the stadium without having the tickets on the app. And when we tried to get into the stadium, despite having all the reference numbers, all the booking numbers, all the ID with us that they'd asked for, we were told at the turnstile that we couldn't get in because we didn't have the tickets on the app. And we were sent to this ticketing office right around the back of Wembley Arena, for any of you who know uh, the area, which was quite a long walk and we had to jog it almost and then queue up in this airport-style queue to get into the ticketing office. 
And we got to the front of the queue. The gentleman asked us what was up and we told him and he said, yeah, we have this problem a lot with people who purchase tickets very late in the day. And then we got our tickets printed out and then we had to sprint back to the stadium so as not to miss uh, what was going on. And, you know, you can't go to a Euros game, especially when Italy are playing and miss the national anthems. It's like the big, the big attraction. So, yeah, um, managed to do it in the end. And um, very, as I say, very lucky to have been there because that is a, you know, I think at the time when you go to to big and important and significant football matches, and I'm very lucky I've been to, to many, but you don't really at the time realise the, the kind of size of the occasion until you look back on it later on. And I think in this case, you look back on that and not only was it a semi-final of a European Championship, which is a huge game in itself, but it was an incredibly entertaining game between two very, very good sides. Um, the atmosphere was incredible. Both sets of supporters, although the Italians very much outnumbered the Spanish. And I'd imagine that's because there is a bigger Italian community here in, in London. Um, you know, given all the restrictions that are in place at the moment, it is obviously difficult to travel around and without quarantining, etc., etc. So, you know, the atmosphere was great. The Italian atmosphere in particular was special. I was in the Italy end. So perhaps I'm doing the Spanish side a little bit of an injustice, but when you're not that close to it and you're on the other side of the ground, then naturally uh, your side will feel louder and will feel uh, more dominant. But what a night um, and and honestly blessed to have been there. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a memory that I will look back on uh, for many, many years to come. But let's get into the actual ins and outs of the game because many people, neutrals in particular, came away from this game feeling as though the best team on the night probably lost. Um, and I'd been talking in the lead up uh, to this game about how interested I was to see how uh, Spain would, uh, sorry, Italy would cope with a side who were going to have more of the ball. One of the things that Italy have been highly praised for at this tournament is showing a different side to their game, is playing in a way that we perhaps haven't associated with Azzurri teams of the past, being able to dominate possession, control games of football in the sense of by having the ball. I think you can control games of football uh, to a degree without having the ball as well. If you're very rigid in your positioning, very uh, sort of organised and very sort of, you know, very robust and very stubborn to break down. But Italy have shown a different side at this competition and it's why so many people have kind of jumped on board and sort of made Italy their their second favourite team because of because of the style of the football, because of how exciting it's been, because of how explosive it's been in certain situations. The counter-attacks have been devastating. The, um, you know, the fullback, uh, particularly Leonardo Spinazzola, who obviously wasn't available uh, yesterday and isn't going to be available um for the rest of the tournament but he's a player that's you know caught the imagination of those watching on you look at the midfield trio of uh, Barella uh, Jorginho and Marco Verratti three players who um you know are incredibly good at what they do in terms of dominating the midfield not just when they have the ball at their feet but also with the way they aggressively press and they press in a way that we've not as I say seen an Italy side do in years gone by for me, as a massive Italian football fan and someone who covers the game in Italy very closely, it is great to see the likes of, for example, 
Nicolo Barella, uh, Federico Chiesa, players who get lots of credit in Italy, and rightly so, but maybe are not as highly rated as they should be by those watching on from the outside. And that's not to sort of, you know, kick anybody in the teeth or say that they're wrong or, you know, naturally, if you don't watch a player regularly, you sometimes miss what those qualities are. You you sometimes undervalue how good they actually are week in, week out. And what was great about uh, watching some of these players at this tournament and, and up until now has been that they have shown that they can do it at the very highest level, uh, which many people in Italy would have told you previously, but that maybe necessarily wasn't necessarily the, the common sort of feeling about them outside of the, of the Italian peninsula. So it's great to see um, some of those players come into the fore. But as I said, I, I was really interested and intrigued to see whether having gone through this transition, having gone through this transformation under Roberto Mancini, Italy would then be able to revert back to what's made them great in years gone by in order to see themselves through against a Spanish side that are very good at controlling games of the football in a different way by actually having the ball. Um, 70% possession. Italy had 70% of the ball. Um, Sorry, Spain. What was I talking about? Spain had 70% of the ball. Italy, just 30%. Spain had more than double the shots at goal, 16 in comparison to Italy, 7. But only five of uh, Spain's attempts at goal, five of those 16 were on target. And Italy managed four on target from their seven. So Italy a bit more efficient in that final third. And while Spain dominated the ball when they had seem to have control and they seem to kind of really pin Italy back. I would actually argue that there were periods in the game where Italy on the counter-attack, using the pace of Chiesa uh, in particular, and Insignia um, sort of dropping into these deeper little positions and pockets and flicking balls on and playing first-time passes, I'd argue that Italy actually looked more threatening. And that's the thing, isn't it? You know, you can have lots of the ball, but you need to be efficient with it. And I think... Um, with Arsenal over the course of last season, we we saw a lot of that. We saw a lot of Arsenal dominating teams, dominating possession, uh, but not necessarily being able to convert that into actual, um, you know, into actual goals and, and opportunities. And it was really, really frustrating. And I feel like this, we as Arsenal fans can relate to how some of the Spanish fans must be feeling this morning because they will feel like they should have won the game. They will feel like the better team lost. And I get all of that. And I and I, I probably agree with it. I just, it, it's, it's one of these things that we see quite a bit with Spain and with that particular philosophy. You know, a lot of possession doesn't always mean, um, you know, success. You look at the way that Spain set up, and I think, you know, a lot of people probably expected Alvaro Morata to start up front. I certainly did. Uh, but instead, he went with uh, a front three of uh, Oyarzabal, Olmo and Torres. So he essentially played Danny Olmo as a false nine. And in doing that, they dominated the ball, as we we keep saying. Playing with a false nine allows you to dominate games in that sense, but it also can reduce the amount of clear-cut chances that you get in and around the penalty area. And I think when Morata came on, 
you saw the difference in Spain. All of a sudden, they looked more potent. They looked like they could get in behind that a little bit easier. They also had a target in terms of a, a physical presence in and around that area as well. So for me, um, I'm not saying Luis Enrique got it wrong because he, he, he controlled most of the game. And Morata, when he did come on, you know, came on at a crucial time and scored a goal for Spain that forced the game into extra time. But, you know, I'm... It's, it's a philosophy clash, isn't it? You know, you look at the two philosophies. Italy, yes, they want to be on the front foot uh, more now under Mancini than probably ever before. But they also recognise that against the Spanish team, they were going to have to dig in, be resolute, be resilient and almost revert back to what served them very well in years gone by. Talking about Italy, though, I think that Roberto Mancini got a little bit lucky in the way that he managed the game because... He did it against Belgium as well. And I talked about it off the back of that game. But against Belgium, it was a lot more comfortable. He, obviously, his team took the lead. Um, a wonderful goal from Federico Chiesa. And we all know that Federico Chiesa's got that in his locker, right? We all know that Chiesa has got a knack um, for popping up with important goals in crucial moments. And for me, the minute he received that ball in that position, there was no doubt in my mind that he was going to find the far corner. And Unai Simon, the goalkeeper, was literally uh, planted to the ground, couldn't move, couldn't stop it. Brilliant goal. Um, and, and then from then on, Mancini kind of very quickly, in my opinion, went into, we've got to defend what we've got mode. And that's okay, but there's got to be a balance in the way you do that, in my opinion. The way that Spain had played and the, the, the sort of dominance that Spain had showed in terms of how much they had the ball, you always knew that it was very possible, likely even, that they were going to find an equaliser. And then what do you do after that equaliser goes in? Because some of the changes that, that Mancini made, and I know a lot of them will be down to, to fitness issues and they'll be down to uh, sort of needing to give people a break. I get that. But Chiro Mobile came off after 61 minutes, replaced by uh, Domenico Berardi shortly after the goal went in, immediately after the goal went in. Um, I didn't think, I, I didn't think Immobile had his greatest game. So he had a couple of opportunities in the first half. We probably should have been better with, uh, but that change was made and all of a sudden, Italy were without really a proper centre-forward. You saw uh, Insigne sort of move into a more central position. Then he took off uh, the duo of uh, Emerson and Verratti on 74 minutes, replaced them with uh, Toloi and Pessina. And then on 85 minutes, after Spain had equalised, Locatelli came on. So he came back into the midfield, uh, uh, kind of like for like for Barella. And then Belotti came on to replace Insigne. So it was almost like he'd taken off a centre-forward. Um, it was almost like he'd taken off a centre-forward to give him more in the midfield with a view to seeing the game out. And then when he couldn't see the game out, he had to almost reverse that by bringing on another centre-forward to kind of deal with that. And I think that he made some of those changes a little bit too early in the game. Um, I thought that Italy were coping quite well. And I thought that taking away the outlet ball, taking away the uh, the focal point in attack maybe actually hindered them. Uh, but, you know, there's 
there's other factors, of course. Is that you know, I, I I have to stress the point. This is not me sort of slating Roberto Mancini because I think he's a top manager. It's just that for me, when I look at it objectively, I I do think he got away with it a little bit, and I thought he got away with it a little bit against Belgium just because his defence defended so well. I, I, I'm not just coming up with this point off the back of Spain equalising. I, I, as I said, I, I mentioned it after the Belgium game and I saw that again in Mancini tonight or last night. Uh, so that was a bit of a, a bit of a kind of negative against Italy, but the positives, I mean, the pragmatism that they showed, the, the, the game management, all the things you associate with Italian football of the past were, were on display. And, um, you know, when it came to the penalty shootout, they held their nerve uh, better than anybody else. And it was just um, so Alvaro Morata, wasn't it, to for him to be the man to get them back on level terms, spark wild celebrations behind the goal and then be the man, not the only man to miss a Spanish penalty, but the man to miss the penalty that ultimately, um, ultimately cost Spain very, very dearly. So, yeah, um, you know, Spain as a, as a nation in terms of penalties, they, you know, they got through just about against Switzerland who took some really poor penalties in my opinion, but then also, you know, when you look at their record in of penalties during actual games, it's very, very poor. Um, Morata was, was impressive when he came on, as I said, and Danny Olmo was, was impressive for large periods of the game as well. And those were the two guys that missed and just goes to show that in a penalty shootout, anything can happen. And what Italy did very well was, when they weren't at their best and there were large periods where they weren't, when they were large periods where they were second best, they survived. And that's the thing about football, right? And my, my brother made this point to me yesterday after the game, we were sitting there having a meal um, after the match finished. We're kind of waiting for the traffic to die down. And he said, the thing with football that other sports don't have, and this is a, a really good point, but it's simi you wisdom, not from me. The thing with football is that you can be the better side. You can be the better performers. But unless you actually score goals, you don't get any reward for that. It's not like boxing, for example, where if you don't knock someone out, but you've been the better fighter, you've landed the most punches. Those statistics go towards earning you the victory. That's not the case in football. It is very much about goals. And it, everything else at the end of the day is irrelevant. And, um, and that's where Spain fell short. That's where Spain fell short. They didn't have that knockout punch and uh, Italy were able to hold on, survive and deliver a knockout punch of their own. The, uh, the Chiellini thing as well, I'm sure you guys have all uh, have all seen it sort of around the social media platforms of uh, Chiellini sort of having that little bit of banter with Jordi Alba before the penalty shootout and kind of unsettling him a little bit. Um, you know, Jordi Alba didn't miss a penalty, but it... Um, you know, that was just so typical Italy. Just silly little things like that, that just get in people's heads and just divert the focus of of the, their opponents from what is actually meant to be happening and what their actual task at hand is and, and trying to cause a, a bit of a sort of an issue for them that way. I thought it was great. Um, as I say, extremely privileged to have been at the game. And I think that Italy will make uh, brilliant opponents for anybody they face in the final which moves me on nicely to the game between England and Denmark this evening. I'm not going to go into some 
kind of tactical analysis or anything like that. I'm not going to get too deep into it because we're going to bring you another Euro show tomorrow and we'll be able to look back on it better. I think we'll be able to focus on uh, where it went right for England or where it went wrong. Um, interesting to see Kasper Schmeichel having a little go about the football's coming home song. Um, <laughs> that made me laugh. The guy's got a point, to be fair. Uh, but yeah, we'll... Um, We'll kind of, uh, as I say, dig into that game and how it all unfolds tomorrow. But just kind of my thoughts going into the game. I think home advantage for England is is a massive thing. It's huge. I mean, I saw the the kind of importance of it last night from an Italy perspective when they had, I would say, three quarters, maybe more of the stadium uh, sort of wearing blue and, and cheering them on. I think that made a massive difference. It helped them get over the line. England obviously have that. And with the Danes being unable to travel to the UK due to COVID restrictions as well, I think that's um, that's massive. Uh, there will be some Denmark fans there, of course, but you know there won't be anywhere near as many as there could have been. England fans will have gobbled up all the tickets as well, rightly so, uh, given sort of uh, the fact that they've got the, the games uh, being played in their home nation, which helps. And I just think with England, they've, they've kind of been the perfect, they've, performed like a big team should at a major tournament where where they've gone from stuttering through games at the beginning to sort of slowly picking it up, picking it up, picking it up. And now they've clicked into gear. Uh, they have uh, pushed into a place where they are not in top gear still. I still think they've got more gears to shift into, which is what will worry the likes of Denmark. But their forwards have come to the party now. They're, you know, it's a, for me, England have more to give in this tournament. And I look at Denmark and I'm not sure that they can go beyond what they've already achieved. I'm not sure they can go beyond the level that they showed against Wales, for example, where I thought they were really good. I didn't think they were that convincing against the Czech Republic. I've got to be honest. When they were 2 0 up, I looked at it and I went, wow, I think this one's done and dusted. But, they almost allowed the Czech Republic to get a foothold back in the game and didn't look very comfortable or convincing at the end, I've got to say. So, yeah, um, I, I make England big, big favourites here. Be interesting to see what Gareth Southgate does in terms of the system, the formation. Will he match up to the uh, the Danish shape, which is that three at the back and the wing backs, etc.? How will he look to cope with the likes of Mela, Joachim Mela, who's been a really important player for them, um, coming down that, that left wing? Uh, they got some really useful forwards in in Dolberg and Damsgaard, in my opinion. So it's going to be interesting to see how England approach this game, who Gareth Southgate goes for. Obviously, made a number of changes uh, for the game against the Ukraine, and then he made a number of substitutions during the game that allowed certain people to pick up rest uh, to to sort of save themselves to give them a little bit of a breather. So yeah, I, you know, as always with England, there will be people kind of killing him for his team selection. Uh, before we know whether it's the right one or not. But it's a big, big game at Wembley and uh, the possibility of an Italy versus England final uh, is a real one. And I expect that to be the final, but I'll tell you what, and I will say this, don't write off the Danes. Don't write off anybody in football because as we saw last night, if you can survive, then you've always got a chance. And Italy over the years have always been very good at surviving. Denmark, not as talented as an overall team, in my view, but are channeling an emotional energy off the back of that Christian Eriksen 
uh, incident that I don't think anybody else can match. So if the Danes can can channel that in the right way and can kind of get over the, the kind of difficulties that they've had, because, you know, they've had to travel around since the group stages, which made it harder as well. But if they can kind of channel that in the right way, then they are a dangerous opponent. That's the key word. They're not favourites by any stretch of the imagination, but they are dangerous in the sense of if you're not at their best, they are, if you're not at your best, sorry, they are very capable of punishing, very capable of stepping up to the mark and they have the players to hurt England. So England should win. England are rightly the favourites and the big favourites. And I expect England to be preparing for uh, the Euro 2020 final to come this Sunday. But it's going to take, uh, it's going to take a, a professional performance from England. I don't think it's going to be as plain sailing as the game was against Ukraine. Uh, but, you know, you never know. England, if England get an early goal and get the crowd behind them and can create the raucous atmosphere that we saw at Wembley against uh, during the game against Germany, then, you know, that's a major, major advantage. And it's why, in the eyes of many people, it is coming home. The question will probably be, though, come Sunday, is it coming home or is it coming Rome? Right. I'm going to leave it there. Uh, thanks for all your interaction in the live comments. I will pick up some of the questions a little bit later on, guys, uh, on the stream that we're going to do later on. Apologies. Got to dash. Uh, got to get back to work. But thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, it is very, very much appreciated. When I say get back to work, this is work, but other work, basically. Uh, that's what I mean. Uh, but I'll be back very, very soon. Uh, I'll be back this afternoon, in fact, with some Arsenal transfer talk. Don't forget to check out our podcast yesterday with the brilliant Sophie from the Highbury Squad and all the other shows that we've put out over the last week or so. Plenty more content to come. And uh, good luck uh, to those of you uh, watching the final tonight and supporting either of the two sides. Until next time, take care. listening to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.